In South Florida, only the sun is hotter. It's the Joyce Kaufman Show now. 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 On News Talk 850 WFTL. People would freak out if they saw sometimes what happens in the on the brakes um, when I get into my clumsy Joyce. I mean, state. maybe <laughs> it'd be fascinating, right? I mean, I'm forever dropping my headphones. I'm forever slipping off of my chair because you know what we need here? We need one of those uh, plastic mats so that the chair slides, oh. right? See, I have this like little like indent in the carpet near my chair so it doesn't do it doesn't move anywhere so yeah well that that would be helpful for I you know, but i i need to move <laughs> and this this sucker is is just it it's it won't move but that's uh you know listen that's just a little bit background everybody should know what's actually going on in any program any show that you are listening to and since i don't have a tv camera in here i have to explain it with my uh, words. Well, what's impressive is how, like, even though this is happening like five seconds before you're about to go on air, yeah, you do it flawlessly. So it's like- <laughs> flawlessly. Thank you. Thank you. I do. I'm impressed. I have learned how to recover, um, even in the midst of <laughs> the insanity that I wreak on myself. Um, one of the things that I was looking at over the weekend, and I, I never got to talk about yesterday, um, so I think I might actually uh, bring it up today even though uh, I, you know, I was a little bit uh, on the older side is I, I was I read an article about um, Sarah Palin and her reaction um, to being disinvited from John McCain's funeral now I, I didn't even know that she was disinvited I noticed that she wasn't there but I I just uh, I, I didn't make too big a deal of it in my mind i mean she does live in alaska it's not like a short trip to uh, washington but then i i uh, i saw this article i think it was in the washington examiner in which she described um how it felt like a gut punch which is an expression that i use quite frequently um because what it signifies is that it's it knocks the wind out of you, right? And I have thought a lot, and I've spoken a lot over the years about what happened uh, to Sarah Palin and how unfair it, it was. Um, and part of the reason that I, I feel like I'm in a unique position to do that was I had actually met Sarah Palin prior to the announcement that she was going to be um, the vice presidential candidate with John McCain. And the way that I met her was weird, but it was interesting because it gave me a lot of insight into who she really was, something that the media denied us, did not allow us to see who she really was. They wanted her to be, you know, uh, for, for a media that's so obsessed with furthering uh, the, the desires and the careers of women, they were relentless going after Sarah Palin making her dumb uh the she doesn't read newspapers i mean it was all this crazy stuff and so i had come on the air pretty soon after the announcement and i said that when i was in alaska i went on a cruise to alaska and it was actually a radio event a radio sponsored cruise and one of the things that i was uh 
allowed to do that had actually been arranged not by the radio station but by some friends of mine in uh, well let's just say in political high places was that I was going to get to visit the governor at the time who was Sarah Palin <laughs> and I didn't know her from a, a hole in the wall um, and I'd never heard of her and so before I went, I always like to do a little bit of background checking. Like you don't want to walk into somebody's office and not know, you know, squat about them. And what I found was that she had started out as the mayor of a town in Alaska and that she had ultimately run to become the governor and replaced a pretty popular governor. And that in her first term in office, she had refunded money to every single taxpayer in Alaska based on these oil revenues that the state was appreciating and which she felt should be dispersed among the population. And that in and of itself seemed like a pretty amazing thing to me. And so I was inclined to view her favorably before I met with her. Um, when I had the opportunity to actually meet with her, I will tell you that she was humble. Um, it was literally a week or two before the announcement was made that she was running, that she would be running with John McCain. Uh, I'm sure that she knew she was a contender. She may even already have known that she was uh, the, the one selected. I, I'm not positive, but I, I think that's a good possibility. She certainly knew she was uh, in the finals for that. And I got to tell you, it was unbelievable to me that when she came out, people were saying these horrible things about her. It was just not my experience. My experience was very specific. First and foremost, um, she was gracious. She was knowledgeable. Um, she appreciated the fact that I did a little bit of research and I knew about the taxes. I mean, I'm sure most people just ignore you know, these things, they don't matter that much uh, to the media. The media is all left-wing lunatics, so they don't care about refunding money to taxpayers. They don't even think that's a good thing. <laughs> they think you should take more money away from taxpayers. So it wasn't surprising to me. But what was surprising to me was how they painted her as dumb. I met the woman for maybe eight minutes tops, probably more like five minutes. Not a whole lot of time anyway. And the next time I would meet Sarah Palin was in Miami at a campaign event with John McCain. It was probably two months, maybe even three months after um, they started campaigning together. And I walked up behind the, the they were actually in a public area, an out, outdoor area, and I walked up to the stage area and I handed my business card to one of the you know, media pe press people that was there, not press people, but one of her communications, their communications team, who said, well, let me get you uh, to um, Governor Palin's uh, assistant. And they tracked down that person, and the person came over to me, and I gave him my business card, and I said, just tell uh, the governor that I'm, you know, I'm at, I'm at this event and that um, I was very uh, pleased when I met her in Alaska a couple of weeks ago. She was very gracious. And when the aide came back, Sarah Palin was with her. And she looked at me. And this was the part that, you know, we'll ne I'll never forget. 
And she said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Um, she goes, yeah, yeah, I knew I was in, you know, I knew I was under consideration. She didn't tell me that she knew she was selected. She said, and, uh, you know, but I was, of course, not allowed to, to say anything at that time. And she said, how are your kids? And then she named them. Now, I met this woman for eight minutes, okay? Now, one of two things happened. Either she had researched me the way I had researched her, which tells me she's smart, or she remembered the conversation that we had because we talked about our children. And we talked about how our children were different. It was a different, you know, uh, a different political bent. And I was stunned. I thought this woman is smarter than anybody knows because, you know, the only other person who ever remembered particulars about me after one meeting was Newt Gingrich, and he's the smartest man in the room. Most other people, you're lucky if they remember your name or your face, right? Uh, they got a lot of people they meet, a lot of conversations that they have, and so I was very impressed with that, and I defended her all throughout that campaign. As a matter of fact, um, I said it then, and I'll say it again, and I don't care what Megan McCain has to say about it. The only reason that I voted for John McCain was because I wanted to vote for Sarah Palin. That's all. And I, I knew he was old, and I thought, well, you know, I need a vice president who can really step up just in case, you know, God forbid, you know. And, uh, and, and you know, that was just, I'm just being honest. That's what I was thinking at the time. And I thought she was great. Um, so he, he got my vote because he selected her or his team selected her and then they disrespected her at every turn and to find out that they disrespected her in terms of the funeral really uh, I understand why it felt like a gut punch you know these were people who treated her badly on the campaign trail these were people who uh, never cared that she had made an enormous impression on many people, particularly people who were involved in the Tea Party. You know? And so when I read this article, I think it was in the Examiner, about how she was talking to um, Pierce Morgan from Good Morning Britain, and she said, you know, they didn't have to embarrass me and embarrass others. That was weird. I hope that doesn't happen to other people. It's kind of a butt, gut punch. And, you know, I, I thought about that. You know, she didn't say a word at the time of the funeral. But she did finally speak up after the funeral. And, you know, John McCain lamented picking her in his book, The Restless Wave, adding that he wished he had chosen uh, Joe Lieberman a Democrat instead. And uh, Sarah Palin, she was used. She was used as a scapegoat to deflect away from the poor job that McCain's team had done running the campaign. There were so many snakes in his campaign and the Republican Party who were running the show and then uh, they allowed her to get clobbered by the press. They offered no defense. I could have been the best defender of her of all. There were other people like me who wanted to defend her. They didn't, they didn't care. They were looking for someone to blame because they had a really crappy campaign. And they used Sarah Palin in that manner. And she had never heard anything from John McCain. Thought they had a good relationship. Thought the families had a good relationship. Mentioning that she even talked with uh, Meghan McCain before the funeral, offering condolences. And they disrespected her in that manner. Let me tell you something. John McCain... Never mind.
my mother told me never to speak ill of the dead. But I feel the same way about John McCain as President Trump does. What can I tell you? We got another anti Semite in the Democratic Party. Not that that's surprising to anybody out there. And this one has engaged in crude anti Semitism, according to the ADL. He has consistently impugned the loyalty of American Jews. Uh, according to the American Jewish Congress, and he has compared Israel to the Nazis, which, according to even the U.S. State Department, is anti-Semitic. So, irony of ironies, longtime Democratic Party official James Zogby has emerged as one of the most prominent voices in the party defending Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who, by the way, has now got a little problem with some campaign finance uh, ethics charges coming her way. Um, this is a longtime leader, Zogby, of all kinds of anti-Israel groups. First, he had the Palestine Human Rights Campaign. Then it was the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. And now he has the Arab American Institute. He's also a pollster. And at the same time, he's been uh, in the Democratic Party leadership. He was the deputy manager of Jesse Jackson's uh, 84 and 88 presidential campaigns. Do people even remember that Jesse Jackson ran for the presidency twice? In 1995, Zogby was appointed co-convener of the National Democratic Ethnic Coordinating Committee. What is that? What is the Ethnic Coordinating Committee? You have to coordinate the ethnicities? Uh, this, they make this stuff up. And then it comes back to bite them, as you're seeing with the anti-Semitism that's prevalent in the Democrat Party. So again, to all of you out there, who get into these long-winded conversations with family members who happen to be members of the tribe and are still supporting Democrats, give up. They're, they're dead from the neck up. There's nothing you could do to revive them. Um, you just have to go about your business and hang around with more evangelicals. That's all I can tell you. Um, because, this is what Zogby said, okay? Because Omar has dared to challenge the way supporters of Israel have worked to silence debate on U.S. policy toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, she has become a victim of incitement and hate crimes and the target of legislation meant to shame her. Okay, hold on. What hate crimes? What incitement? What is he talking about? Can't just throw those kinds of terms around. The target of legislation meant to shame her? That legislation ended up being anti-Islamophobic. If anything, it shamed me. Shamed the people who put it. You know, this guy has made so many anti-Semitic comments himself that I'm sure he thinks that, you know, Ilhan Omar is okay, you know. He says that uh, she didn't slander Jews. And now she's getting assault for being a Muslim woman. Yeah, she's so assaulted that she, she uh, came to this country and she's now sitting in Congress. Man, that's a rough way to go. Uh, um, and she, she, this is a woman who actually said that uh, wearing a hijab is empowering. I mean, she can't be that stupid, right? She does understand that the reason that she is asked to cover her head is because it might entice a man 
and they're simply not able to control themselves. Zogby, this is a guy who once said that Prime Minister Shimon Peres, of all people, was carrying out state-sponsored terrorism. This is a guy who called Hezbollah terrorists the Lebanese armed resistance. And this is a guy who says when the Palestinians attack, terrorist attacks, that those are desperate acts of striking out against the master. Not to mention when he said that Israel ethnically cleansed the land of Arabs, which is interesting since there are still several million Arabs residing in Judea, Samaria, and Gaza. And then recently, this is the best one. He accused celebrity chef Rachel Ray of committing cultural genocide against the Palestinians because she referred to hummus as an Israeli food. Shame on Rachel Ray. They need to get rid of people like Zogby. These unrepentant anti-Semites aren't helping uh, to make the mainstream of America believe that there's not a streak of anti-Semitism running right through the Democrat Party. Anyway, stay tuned. Andrew Arthur, Art is coming on with me uh, right after the news break. to make the connection, but we'll uh, keep a line open for him. I keep all the lines open. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but there's a real crisis with these unaccompanied kids. And uh, Andrew wrote a great uh, art wrote a great article today um, about how there are right now 1,200 unaccompanied alien children in U.S. Customs and Border Protection custody. In addition to 6,600 families, which brings the total of children in custody to approximately 4,700. This is a letter that uh, Homeland Secretary Kirsten Nielsen wrote with an urgent request to, to give her some help so that she could uh, s stop what she considers a tide of migrants overwhelming the border and that they are facing a system-wide meltdown. It's amazing. You know, that, that, that they're saying there's no crisis. While she admits the, that the detention of those unaccompanied uh, um, alien children is an unacceptable length of stay in facilities not designed to hold children for extended periods, there is nowhere else for them to go. The systems within the Department of Health and Human Services to care for those kids in residential shelters are at peak capacity. The border and immigration facilities at the DHS are at or over capacity with serious overcrowding as thousands of migrants rush towards the U.S. So they've been urgently working to acquire additional bed space and to speed up transfers of individuals into their custody. The department has had to release both adults as well as families directly from custody. And those releases will simply encourage greater numbers of foreign nationals to come, taking a chance that they will be among those who get released. So why is this a problem? Well, as the secretary explains, kids are put at high risk 
by this emergency. And they're arriving sicker than ever. Before, after traveling on this, uh, some of them were sick when they got on this uh, trip. And if you think the secretary is overstating the dangers, she actually quantifies them. Agents and officers are performing more than 60 hospital visits a day, many to ensure young people get immediate treatment. And we are now regularly seeing individuals arrive with life-threatening conditions. Reports of violence and sexual assault along the route are now pervasive, meaning that many arriving migrants require especially focused care. In some cases, girls as young as 10 years old uh, in DHS custody require pregnancy tests so we can be sure they get essential medical support. 10-year-old girls being raped. And this is not a crisis, according to the... Uh, you know, the Democrats, and according to big business-loving Republicans as well. You got smugglers and traffickers forcing more people into inhumane conditions, putting lives in danger, preying on innocent people, making money off of them, breaking our laws. It's absolutely uh, outrageous. And she's not the only one who talks about the humanitarian aspects of mass migration of unaccompanied children. That's right. Michael McCall, the, cha- the then chairman, said, the, said in 2014 that this was a crisis at the time. It's a escalating refugee crisis, he said. Parents are handing over their young children by the thousands to cartels who are profiting by smuggling the kids into the United States. Many are under the age of 10, including some barely old enough to walk. No parents, no relatives, no legal guardians are sent on a perilous and sometimes fatal journey. They're riding buses and trains from Central America via Mexico. I don't know about the rest of you, but uh, Chairman McCall had said that day, and I'll never forget, he said, you know, I'm a father of five, and it is unimaginable to me to risk the lives of my kids on such a dangerous passage, not to mention this risk of sexual assault and exploitation and the potential to be trafficked. When they arrive at the border, the children are simply turning themselves into the nearest Border Patrol agents. But these agents and these stations are not set up to handle uh, growing numbers of detainees, let alone children. So in his testimony at that hearing, then-Secretary Jay Johnson sounded an alarm similar to Secretary Nielsen's. He said, to be clear, we face an urgent situation in the Rio Grande Valley. Last fiscal year, uh, CBP apprehended more than 24,000 unaccompanied kids at the border. By mid-June of this year, that number had doubled to more than 52,000. Those from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras make up three-quarters of that migration. I mean, this has been going on for years, and I'm still being told that, uh, you know, it's all in Donald Trump's head. Jay Johnson went down to South Texas for the fourth time in six months when he was at this hearing, he reported, to lead an emergency team. While there, we met with officials at McAllen and Lackland to review the situation and hear directly from those on the ground what their needs are. While there, I spent time talking with the children. It is a vivid reminder that this is a humanitarian issue as much as it is a matter of border security. 
We are talking about large numbers of children without their parents who have arrived at our border hungry, thirsty, exhausted, scared, and vulnerable. So let's face it, there is little or no chance at this time with the Democrats controlling the House of Representatives to close any of these loopholes, the ones that are encouraging all these children and their families to enter this country illegally. Um, they're not going to provide additional funding for detention, despite statements that they made in March um, when they visited El Paso. You had the House Judiciary Chairman, uh, Gerald Nadler, was down there, and he said to the uh, Texas media, that uh, that he was in the El Paso Border Patrol station where hundreds of migrants are now being held. And uh, what we saw, he said, was a detention facility that was grossly, grossly overcrowded with people. We saw people lying in a room, one room with women, one with men, no place to sit down, no chairs, no beds, nothing. It's apparent to me that the personnel there are doing the best they can, but it is grossly overcrowded. Now, he saw that on March 31st. But he didn't mention any of that on his Twitter feed today. No, instead, he's focusing on the census and gaining access to the Mueller report. You know, maybe when the situation at the border gets dire enough or, or some individual who poses a risk to national security is able to use this current disaster at the border to come into the country and directly harm some Americans, maybe then the Democrats in Congress will be willing to at least consider addressing the vulnerabilities within our current law. They're being exploited. Short of that, I don't believe that they would want to give the president any concessions. They don't want to give him anything. And it's up to him to use the authority that he has to address the situation. His primary responsibility is to safeguard me and you. And one step is for him to declare a new national emergency and implement the landmass migration plan. You know, uh, Jessica Vaughn had said... Uh, the plan calls for the Department of Homeland Security to stand up tent facilities adjacent to the existing detention centers used along the border and house illegal migrants there, even the families, in lieu of this dizzying catch and release process that's now the norm. You know, we had a, a crisis here in South Florida. When I first uh, came down here, we had a Marielle boat lift. And those migrants were coming by sea. And there was no question that a mass migration plan was implemented, right? Because, oh, it's so dangerous, the sea passage. Well, let me tell you something. The land passage that these kids are making through Central America to the United States, it is just as dangerous, maybe more dangerous in a way. It's a different kind of danger. It's a danger from human predators. You know, we got to sit around and talk about whether uh, creepy Uncle Joe is a sexual predator when there are actual sexual predators abusing these unaccompanied minors uh, as they trek their way illegally crossing the border. And, and that doesn't bother them. That doesn't bother anybody, apparently. Uh, and we should remember that it was President Obama in June of 2014 who issued a presidential memorandum in response to all these unaccompanied alien children, right? And he said, it's an urgent humanitarian situation requiring a unified and coordinated federal response. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of Homeland Security, 
that would be the uh, Jay Johnson at the time, to establish an interagency united coordination group to ensure unity of effort across the executive branch in responding to the humanitarian aspects of this situation, consistent with the Homeland Security Act of 2002, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, uh, the, the secretary did just that. He directed Craig Fugati, who was then the, uh, the FEMA uh, acting administrator, to serve as the federal coordinating official to lead that group. And what did they say? They said, we're overwhelmed. Then. They're twice as overwhelmed now. Secretary Nielsen's letter makes it clear that if you don't do something like that, even more than that, then this is a disaster and it's about to get even worse. President Trump should do exactly what President Obama did and set up a coordination group to address the disaster and manage it, handle it. It's too big for the Department of Homeland Security to handle alone. We need other federal government response, maybe the Defense Department, whatever. You know, and DHS can play a part in it. You know, the acting ICE director, Ron Vitello, was the official put in charge back in 2014 within DHS. And I hope the president does what he said and closes the border. That's all. Close it. Make the pain felt to, to the rest of the country. Because the people who are living in these sections of the border, no matter what Beto uh, O'Rourke says, are suffering mightily. Let me make sure I get, I get that video up of what was happening in a town, Mission, Texas, where literally just uh, swarms of people on, on people's private property in a gated community. How many of you live in a gated community? How would you feel if you suddenly saw, you know, 13 people scrambling through your property, um, ragtag, after making a brutal trip, many of them children. Would you call it a crisis? I sure would. I live in a gated community. If I see one ragamuffin in my community, it's a crisis. Never mind the family's full. Mexico's got to help. If they don't regulate the flow of Central Americans passing through their territory, well, then, uh, you know, then we shouldn't give them anything either, any free pass. If Mexico doesn't halt illegal immigration into their com com country, rather, what should we do? I prefer love and peace, Lopez Aparador said at his regular morning news conference, because, of course, Donald Trump threatened to close the U.S. southern border if Mexico didn't halt their immigration problem at their southern border. He would not have a confrontation with the United States. He wants to sing Kumbaya. It's not, oh, and what he said was, we have to address the root causes behind the phenomenon. You know what the root causes are? In, in case anybody is still unclear on what the root causes are, the root causes are poverty and danger. I get it. I am sympathetic. But I don't know how we're supposed to fix the root causes in other countries. We're, we're not, I know that uh, the leftists and the socialists like to say we're imperialists over here, but we're not. We're not supposed to go into other countries and fix their problems, especially when they're not asking for our help.
They are asking for our money, though. So what Donald Trump has to do is withhold that money and say, you're not getting any money unless you begin to make life more tenable for the people in your country to stay. Because while we're giving you money and you're living in palaces, your people are fleeing the country and coming into our country. So if they're going to come into our country, we'll just keep the money. And I, I think he's the only one who has the nerve to do it. I mean, I would have the nerve to do it, but that's why I'll never get elected, right? Somehow, we did get somebody in there who must do this. And if uh, President Lopez Obrador doesn't want to do his part and, and shut down his border, or, or at least control his border, put the military down on his border, well then, let the president do what the president has to do. The Department of Homeland Security is moving officers from its ports to help with the mission, um, reducing lanes. It's going to be real slow. I remember when my son and his, his wife, um, when I was babysitting out there, I guess it was a couple of months ago. Well, it was Christmas time. Um, they had a tough time coming back into the country because the lanes are reduced. Well, imagine uh, there'll be none of those uh, little quickie trips down to Mexico for South Cal uh, South Californians. Nope. You better stay on this side of the border if you want to stay on this side of the border. And that's that. ICE should prioritize the apprehension and the removal of these unaccompanied children and family units, especially the ones who are under final orders of removal, particularly those who fail to appear. Okay, they're not showing up to these asylum hearings. And once aliens are referred to removal proceedings, cases could take months or years to adjudicate because there's such a backlog in the immigration court system. So uh, imagine, 26% originated with a credible fear referral. Of that number, 136,000 uh, involved nationals of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Only 10,000 were Mexican nationals. So that's why, uh, you know, this is not about Mexicans anymore. This is about people from all over who are literally being told and being organized to create these caravans and then just basically storming our borders. Now, let me let me tell you this. If this were happening in any other country, if we had Americans storming the border into uh, Canada instead of showing their passports when they go through a checkpoint, if they were just storming the border thousands at a time, what do you think Canada would do? You think they'd be, uh, you know, cheerful about it? Eh, of course not, and neither should we be.